Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Come to you on Power Talk. Thank you so much for making us part of your day today and always looking for inspiration as we get through each week. And I uh, couldn't think of a better place to start than with my next guest, who's somebody who I don't think even realizes uh, the divine power uh, that uh, he has and the ability for him to essentially reflect out that divine nature through the rhythm on his drum kit. People know him for the, the great grooves and the, and, and, the, and the beats that made so many iconic records, but he also is a phenomenal jazz musician. And, uh, you know, because he was steeped with the... Um, Growing up in Kansas City with the likes of Norman Williams, the Bishop, and then uh, John Boudreaux, ultimately being able to play jazz uh, in, in the first set of a show with Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, which ultimately was more raunchy R&B. But make no mistake, my guess probably could have been uh, one of the leading post-bop jazz drummers, but he didn't want to starve to death. Nor did Jim Keltner and a bevy or Ed Green or all these other cats who could really play beautiful melodic time on the drum kit. Father James Gadsden, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You know, James, we've got a game on this program called Name That Voice. I want to put this in for you right now. Pay attention to the content, and we'll come back and talk right. about it. All right. Right. Well, when we first went to New York, um, we went to Harlem, and we all stayed in one room uh, at the Cecil Hotel, which was on 116th and Lenox. And the Cecil Hotel had Minton's Playhouse mm -hmm. on the lobby floor, which was a club, <laughs> jazz club. I saw many people there, you know, at, at this club. Everybody, and they had an open mic, I guess you would call it. And people would come by after hours and just play. Um, it was where the people that uh, that stayed in the hotel, which was us and me, uh, you know, that hadn't quite made it yet because it was very reasonable. I think I, I can recall it being $5 a night. I heard you barking out the name. You are correct, David T. Walker. And... Uh, that was my interview with him I did a few years back, and I can't remember exactly who was in, uh, I, you, I, the, the, you know, he was on, in the Kinfolk at that time, and right. I think you, I think you joined the Kinfolk after David T. No, I never did join the Kinfolk. Really? What happened was the Kinfolk were playing for Hank Ballard, too. They would play for Hank Ballard, they would do their own show, and then they would you know, they would open the show, and then Hank Ballard then would come on. Well, when when they left, then I, I got to join. You know, I joined. At that time, when I joined, Cal Green, the famous guitar player who had played with Hank Ballard, played on all those hits, uh, you know, House on the Hill, and mm -hmm. had a work with Kenny. He had, he had returned. So I got to play with him, you know, play with him. What I mean, what was the name of the... So you changed the name of the group, but it was essentially the same group. Uh, I mean, the Kinfolk... I, I, I have Walker t saying that you joined them. Uh, I mean, you, that that was the band that was opening for Hank Ballard when you joined them, but was it a different name, or or did you even have a name? Uh, it, it was a different band. You know, I don't think everybody was there. Really? If that, you, was, so if that was the case, yeah, I mean, you know, if that was the case, I think, uh, you know, that was, you know, I don't remember that, but uh, I don't remember joining the camp, folks. Okay, I'm a, no, I, I wanted... But, but, I, but yeah. it's possible, it's possible. I had some, some uh, you know, I had some uh, blackouts. <laughs> no, I mean, I know you were the, they called you the Viper. This was with the Dyke group, because you wouldn't sleep, man. Those guys were... Smoking so much weed, and you were there going 120 miles an hour, so you, you were sleeping. My goodness, yeah, it was rough, boy. They called me the Cobra. The Cobra, yeah. not the Viper, the Cobra, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I'd be, you know, I'd be, every move that they made driving on the highway, you know. 
So, well, let know. me ask, I mean, James, I really, I want to, I mean, because, you know, you're you're blessed in so many ways. You've overcome so much adversity. But when I, in that interview with David T., when he was with the kinfolk, okay, for what it's worth, I mean, they would stop at boarding houses in Pennsylvania and be woken up in the middle of the night by the uh, sheriff. And they'd say, the sheriff would say, you have to leave right now. And they'd wind up at the police station. Uh, David never saw the inside of a jail cell, but, uh, there were times where they, they'd go to concerts backstage. They were not allowed to drink from the water fountain, even though it was backstage. Also, and also like, 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 like the band would get pulled over. Like, I know why you were paranoid because uh, David said that when the band got pulled over, the, the cop would come up to the car and even if they didn't have it doing anything illegal, if the driver or somebody had like a really nice ring on or a necklace, the, the cop would take it and then let them go. Right. Can right. you talk about some of these experiences that you had when you were on the road with, with Hank Ballard? Well, I, I had similar similar experiences. I mean, they would have these uh, this jewelry that they call hooks. I mean, they you know you could buy them. You know, you sell. You see people sometimes. Well, I don't see them that much anymore. But you'd see people. To come up to you, say, man, come on, get, come on, get this ring. Here's a diamond ring. I got, I'm in trouble, man. I got to pay my bills. You know, they they'd have these what, what they call hooks. They were fake diamonds, fake it, diamond rings, interesting fake, uh, gold necklaces. So we'd be riding through these different towns, you know, down south, and uh, get stopped by the police, and they would see this jewelry, and so they would take the jewelry. You know, they, you know, sir, you know, and they would take the jury. I mean, so three or four o'clock in the morning, they would, you know, we get to the, they would have us at the courthouse. You know, it was kind of out. Whoa, I mean, dude, you wait, hold on. Have they, to go. Yeah, you, so they, first of all, I want to be clear. Um, you were based, they were basically whatever they, whatever they, you knew that the cops were going to come and exploit you so that you, you had fake jewelry to give them. Is that right? Yeah, they, they, they had, they knew it. They, they kind of knew it. They had the game down, as you might say. <laughs> so they were kind of playing, the, you know. Yeah. And, uh, of course, we couldn't go through those those towns anymore, those highways. We'd have to get some other routes, you know. Well, what, yeah, what they, would happen? Talk, can you talk about it? I mean, why would they wind up taking you to jail? Because you were speeding? What would they? What would you? Well, they had what they call speed traps. Right. Right. They had they had what they call these speed traps. And and for and for a speeding infraction, they would take an entire, group, they would arrest all of you and take you to jail. Yeah, they did. They did. They did what they wanted to do. How you doing, Jack? You got me. You got some time. Mm-hmm. You got yeah. some time. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, they would do that. How? I mean, can you be? I mean, can you talk about how that shaped your view of? Of this of this country, especially in the deep south, as it related to, because I don't see you having a, 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 a I hate the word racism, but I, I I mean I just I mean how did that shape your view about this American life? Because we're still, I mean it's even worse now. Uh, in some ways, uh, thankfully we have technology that can root this stuff out. But I mean, I I just wonder at that time. It was so unfair, and yet you couldn't do anything about it. And I wonder how that shaped your view about the. I mean, I guess here's the better question: Has it been about pursuing the American dream for you, or James Gadsden's dream? Well, I mean, just pursuing freedom, as you might say. Right. I mean, I never had the dream when you come up uh, instilled in segregation. A lot of times you don't know any better. I mean, your parents and your peers will tell you what what to watch out for and what to do. When you you knew when you rode down south, you knew that you you knew that you were going to face some problems. So you 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 were taught how to act accordingly. You know, so it was it was uh, it's going to always be some problems. So, but you know, you just you had to deal with that. That was something that you had to deal with. It was no, it was no way around it. 
did, did you can you talk about a uh, a time when it it was precarious that you weren't sure if you were going to make it out alive i mean i know cats that that were driving through rural louisiana and they I uh, saw a Ku Klux Klan bookstore on the side of the road and sort, and there was a mixed race band, which was actually more dangerous than an all black band. But the point is that they would yell at the Klan. And then on the way home from the gig, sure enough, a uh, red light would come on and a faux policeman would come up. That was actually Klan. And they identified themselves as Klan, get the people out of the car and, and put them down in execution style. And if not for a couple of very brave people in the band rolling out into the middle of the road when a car was coming, they probably all would have been assassinated. And I just wonder if you could share a specific time of, of running into some serious uh, opposition when you guys were just trying to get to a gig or get home and get some sleep. Well, some of the midnights were Muslims. Interesting. So, I mean, it, 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 you know, it would be very uh, strange a lot of times when we would be stopped, you know. So what, what what happened most of the times, they didn't bother the band as much as they did them really? from talking. You know, they would be talking. So they didn't bother the band as much as they did as, as they did us. But, um uh, you know, it was a, a lot of, you know, but on the other hand, I mean, when we would play those, the colleges at that time in the South were segregated. And a lot of times we'd play the colleges and the Midnighters, they would party with the girls. Of course. You know, I, you know I'd be scared to death. <laughs> Why? Why? Wait, I mean, because, oh, because you're part, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. White, you're white, white girls. girls. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Right, right, right. And so you were you like, like guys, come on, let's get out of here. I didn't say nothing. <laughs> I just sit in the car. I'm sorry. Shivered. <laughs> you know. But I mean they did that. They they had a lot of nerve, I mean, you know. So they would do that to when the colleges, most of the colleges, you know, some of them wasn't like that, but most of them, hey man, they'd be drunk and partying like, you know. So it was uh, you know, it was very different. You know, that with, with the Midnighters, they had a Hank Ballard took a lot of chances. He was uh, he was a daredevil. I'll say it like that. You know, can you talk about a specific chance that he took that was like, whoa! I cannot believe we escaped. Well, well, he had white girlfriends in Atlanta, Georgia at that time, wow. uh, working you know in in different places in the downtown area. And uh, he, he would go down there and visit them. You know, I mean, they'd be working. A lot of people didn't know what was happening. You know, I mean, you know, it was just, they were different. You know, Interracial was, you know, couples at that time, absolutely. Well, it wasn't, no, yeah, I yeah. mean, it was just his girlfriend. I think he might have been married. He just had some girlfriends. But uh, they just took it, he'd take a chance. Right. You know, he did. He took a chance. You know, when you say that there were Muslim people with of Muslim faith, you're saying the cops would hassle them more than the band, or they were in the band. Oh yeah, oh yeah, because they would talk about Elijah Muhammad. Right, you know, right. So they would, they would devils. be, they were educated though. I mean, they would speak, talk back to the cops in an educated way. Well, you know, they said that you call them devils, you white devils. You're, you're messing with us. Wow, whoa, whoa, you know. whoa. So I mean, it, you know, it gets kind of, it would get kind of strange. I mean, for some reason, a lot of times, a lot of times, I thought we were going to all be dead. Right. But I mean, I've had the police, the policemen, to take the shotguns and put them to your head. You could feel it the barrel of the shotgun on your head, and they would cock it. And I, a lot of nights, I thought I was gone, you know. Oh. oh, okay, so that, they would literally put a gun, all of them would put rifles to your head. I mean, that happened more than once? Oh, two or three times. Oh, yeah. my gosh. And yet, and yet, I know you were actually just, like, really trying to toe the line. It was still, like, if you can think back to that time, Part of you was like, I'm I'm willing to. T- I I love the music so much, and I'm will, and I know that what we're doing is trying to bring people together. So this is worth it. It's worth my life. I mean, is that? 
I know Hank. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't so much as that. It's just it was that I was a musician. I was young, and that's what I. That was my job that I had to do. And I figured that. I mean, under those circumstances, that's just what it was. I mean, I figured everybody black, you know, had to go through similar situations of that nature. Especially if you, you know, I mean, not even not only the South. It it would happen up in Utah. Places up like that, the, the the North Dakotas, stuff like that. I mean, it could it could happen anywhere. A lot of times, you <laughs> no, know. absolutely. You're, I mean, and it. I just wonder, <clears throat> not to get you know political, but can you just talk about? And I just want your honest answer about, um, you know, the idea of the the current situation in this country. Um, with all this sort of this, uh, you know, perceived like, oh, wow. Like, I mean, when I used to interview Richard Davis, uh, the great bass player, uh, he'd say that white America, a lot of times you'd hear them say, what are you, what are you complaining about? You, you got Oprah, you got Michael Jordan, now you got Barack Obama. What the hell are you complaining about? Well, I mean, you know, all those are best part. Well, but I mean, I, I mean, that's the argument from white America. And now it's like, oh, well, well, we've yeah. always had uh, wealthy some reason or another, after the slavery, we had well, we had some wealthy black people. Madam C.J. Walker was a millionaire. She was a a hair. Uh, she had black hair products and different things. We had different people. So I mean, you know that that uh, you know that's just an excuse. A person would use that as an excuse. Exactly. Well, and I want you to break down what's happening now. I want you to, this is the question I want to ask you because, because it's very apparent to me the culpability of, I mean, the Klan, the police departments came out of the Ku Klux Klan. So it's already kind of jaded. But is there, I, I guess the question I have is. Yes, yeah, so most of the policemen are Klans. Yeah, unfortunately, I'd say in certain parts of the country, that's true. And I want to ask you. In this part of the country, it's true. You think in LA too? Yeah. My goodness, yes. Yeah, I'm just a naive cat, man. You, I mean, do you... Is there any account... I mean, I remember Billy Cobb talking about in, intra-racial war. A lot of people of color killing other people of color. Is there any accountability within the black community for what's happening? Or is this all just white supremacy uh, and and the idea of saying we can do what we want because these people are people of color and they're subhuman? Or is there something, like, is there something, I mean, you always see cats running away because they're scared, and then the first thing is they get shot? What the hell is well, that? I mean, hey, that's, that's uh, you know, when the police stops a black man, he, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him you, because you don't know what type of policeman that is. Could be a, a Klansman guy or something. So I mean, you, you never know. I mean, that's why you try when you get stopped. You try to pull into somewhere that is light and people can see you, uh, just like that lieutenant did. At, and look what happened to him. At, at, at yeah. Virginia, unbelievable. In Virginia. So you know. So I mean, you know, you just you know you you, you have uh, you 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 are taught certain things by your peers, your elders. You know, it's just one of those things that, that I grew up with. You know, it was something that we grew up with. Now, what's happening now is that th this country has become a country of color. Yes. Not just us. we got a lot of different... Oh, yeah. The browning of America. America. Absolutely. Right. And uh, so I think what's happening, the establishment, they're afraid now that they're going to lose the power. And that the people were going to do them like they did us, which is not true. People just want to live. Just, just want to live a, a righteous life, and uh, you know, that's. But by you having people that that are that evil, then they think like that. That's right. You're you're a hundred percent. And we got those we got those people in these powerful positions that are like that. So, you know, that's 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 what's happening now. But now you got the now the younger people of this generation, ninety five percent of those people, all different nationalities in this country, they don't they 
mingled together. They don't see it like a like the older uh, establishment. They, right, they, they, absolutely. My the mother of yeah. my children is from Taiwan, so they're mixed. But like, yeah, they don't see yeah, that. I don't they see it. See is, yeah, you know, they just see it. You know, uh, uh, you know, they they see it together. You know, they you know, it's just it's it's, it's a different situation. And they will be the people that change this country, you know. As, so it's, it's coming anyway. I mean, if Trump had a won this last election, it's still, it's still coming. It's nothing. They can't stop it because the generation there will be the ones that will be the leaders. You know, so they can't stop it. It's coming. I mean, but, you know, that's, it's the power. It's what it is is the power struggle. And, and you know, hey. We're not people of hate. I mean, and, I mean, I mean, hey, I'm a black man, but hey, man, they do the Indians worse than they do us. They did, you know. Man, I mean, look, at, look at the Indians. They had this country. They came over. Was on the Mayflower. I guess that's what they they say that on the Mayflower. And hey, man, when the Queen put them out of England, a lot of people don't know that they put they had gangsters and all kind of people, murderers, prostitutes, and everybody on those ships. So when they when they put them out, when the Indians made friends with them to keep them from starving, they turned on them. Christopher so, Columbus I mean, was not. Christopher Columbus was was a a, a ruthless person to the Native right. Americans. Yeah, right. I mean, so, it's so it. a lot of people don't know that. You know that you know how they have the history. Oh, they they don't they whitewash the history books. I mean, that's what Gary Bart said. He said to me. It before we, it, when we finally returned to the classrooms, the first thing I was asking about how to make amends for all this tragedy that has never been resolved that relates to Native Americans, um, enslaved people. He said the first thing before kids go back to school, rewrite the te- rewrite the textbooks, rewrite the history books, because you hear about John Brown. He's an aboli- He's a white abolitionist. You never hear about the black abolitionists. You never hear about the. There's only half the history in those books, and that's what Marley was talking. Well, you about. have to go overseas. You go overseas to Italy or somewhere, and and they have that history. They have the American history. They have the true American history. That's okay. right. That's unfortunately and, and, yeah. they don't have it here, and uh, that's, it's, it's definitely for a reason. Like when Katrina happened, I was in Japan, and they showed exactly what was happening. They didn't even show here the bodies floating. They show in Japan. They showed all of that. So I mean, it's you know we. You, that's 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 what we're dealing with, you know, uh, the hatred and, and hatred and, and uh, fear, fear, is, you know, that's what it is. But you know, we are people. You know, it's a, it's a peaceful. We are peaceful people. Oh my! I mean, I James, just if you could just talk to me and the audience. I mean, I am feeling a little bit, um, I guess, just sort of disenchanted. Feeling what, like what is your what is your nationality? You're Jewish. Right? Well, my name is Jewish, but my mom was Hungarian Catholic. My dad's side was Jewish, so it's it's a, they were they were they faced. Although my my both my families were very, uh, uh, they allowed my parents to get married even in the late '60s. A Catholic and a Jew getting together was not was not cool, but they did it. But okay, that well, yeah, I mean it still ain't cool as far as they're concerned. Well, I, you know, I, I mean, how have you, James, I mean, I mean, you're talking about hatred and fear. I mean, Marvin Gaye was talking about that when you were first, when you were starting to a family and not starving to death anymore in, in the early seventies. How, how do you just, how do you look at this time? Like, I mean, the fact that have we made any real progress, uh, I guess since, you know, because I mean, I mean, you've been on the earth a lot long, and actually doing it, and right in it for so long, and we're still dealing with it. Well, progress, progress is making itself. Certain things happen in the world. You know, the Bible will tell you exactly what's happening to a teeth. Well, but a lot of the well, a lot of the white Christians that they use the Bible for white supremacy. Well, they use it wrong, though. See, they don't use it right. Okay, See, but they, they don't. Right. You know, just like the Ku Klux Klan, they use the Bible to their to their advantage. That's right. They don't. You know, they 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 and they, you don't do that. And the last book in the Bible, Revelations, tells about that. You know, I mean, they start from the churches of Pergamum, Smyrna, and all those different churches. 
all the way up. They'll tell you about that. You're not supposed to change what God has, the laws that God has, put, has gave us. So that's what we, you know, they 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 going to have problems, you know. And that's why they're having problems, even within their situation. Look at these evangelists and get, getting uh, busted and everything for different sexual. Uh, oh, it's awful. The things that they're having. I mean, you got all this stuff going on, you know, you got, you know, and then they get busted for doing certain things. They're not living what they say they are. So, I mean, you know, you see, you know, I mean, it's crumbling. It's crumbling. You know, but God will be here. God is all, I mean, he, he is here. So, I mean, that's, I'm a Christian. So that's, that's, that's how I, you know, I wasn't taught. And most black Americans wasn't, wasn't, wasn't raised to hate nobody. And most white Americans weren't raised to hate everybody, but you had a certain amount of them that were raised to hate. Right. Nobody's born to hate. Nobody's born to hate. Yeah. You know. So I mean. So that's that's the problem. The hatred. You know. The fear was actually the fear. Now it's really fear. Well, now it's it's, yeah. I mean, it's 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 vigilantism. I mean, like, uh, did you? I know. uh, Did you ever um, become so entranced in the music that? Uh, you, I mean, because like a lot of cats, I remember uh, like Ted Dunbar from New York, a lot of cats would say church is on the bandstand. And there were cats like Sunship Woody Theus who would, in the middle of uh, playing a set, would start, um, you know, quoting quoting scripture from the Bible. I mean, what was the most sort of like, I don't know, religious, I don't want to say religious, but were, did you ever get to a point when you were... Um, you know, projecting out, uh, you know, because that's where that's where the religion, that's where spirituality is really. It's on the bandstand, and I just wonder how you, you know, how deep you got. Did you ever start chanting or or like in the you know a, a, a scripture from the Bible? How how have you used your, um, you know, your faith in your music outside of writing well, I, songs? I was I was blessed, you know. I was blessed, so I mean, my when I play, they feel they don't feel uh, they feel love, right? You know, they can feel the warmest. Of, they, you know, they say I'm the groove maker, <laughs> so they feel the warmest. No, you just bring everybody home. We could all sit down and have some. I mean, it's just like right. hanging out, you know. Yeah, so that's that's what that's all about. So you and when did you when did you know that you had that that warm? I mean, you're known as the groove master now. It's still like, you know, your lore is getting bigger. But when did that become apparent? Was that on the streets? Was that in Kansas City, or did did that only come once you got into the started to make hit records? That came when I came out here. That happened when I came out here. And uh, I had, you know, had I had uh, gotten away from uh, the church, uh, away from religion, but I start, I, I, I came back, you know, and so I, I, what my situation is, what has happened to me has been a blessing. This is not that's this that's God Almighty is coming through for me when I play those grooves to make the people feel it. That's not me. I wasn't born with that. You know that was a blessing. So that's 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 why that I you know that's that's what that's about. And I when I speak when I tell them people when they ask about that in, in other interviews, I tell them you know oh my man you're great. I said no I give it to God Almighty. You know right. All praises to Him. So that's that's what that is. You know. I got another name that voice for you, uh, James. Uh, take a listen to it. And the content will come back. You know, by '73, see, I had moved to Detroit, uh, from Detroit to Los Angeles, and so that was done uh, in the Los Angeles period. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, things had gotten a little uh, more settled by then because you know Norman was using. I mean, Paul Reiser, uh, another fine young. A ranger from Detroit was doing charts, and uh, and there were several guys that they had picked picked up who now could really arrange. 
So, but but the line, the the, the interesting thing of those lines, the but up up, are just like jazz phrases, right? You know, right? Exactly. It, it, and that that's what used to happen. We used to merge some real hip jazz lines behind these things, and uh, I don't know. It was almost like kind of easing them into the to the R and B thing, but it worked. It was a great combination, which means you know, good music is good music. <laughs> you know, it was funky, it was good, and the jazz guys can can pat their feet to it. You know, but uh, Norman was was really talented. You know, he mm-hmm. really was. He had some great ideas. Wrote some nice things, but uh, now initially going before. When I go back to the early 60s, sure. which I do in Detroit, where we had, you know, the, the rhythm sections of Benny Benjamin, James Jamerson, and Robert White on guitar, and Earl Van Dyke on organ, and, you know, these, the Funk Brothers, the original Funk Brothers. Well, now, that, that was the real trial and error period where we, we just really sat down and collaborated and made it happen. But by the mid-70s, because the Motown... You know, the majority of that, that production came west around 69. I came out here in 68, and they were about a year after that. And uh, then that's when I noticed that, you know, we had pretty good arrangers who knew, who, you know, knew what they wanted. And so now it's, it's just up to us to, to, to play the lines and play it with the right feeling and emphasis and make it happen. Mr. Gadsden, you want to take a guess at who that is? No, I can't, can't remember who that is. That is a cat that you probably played on a lot of dates with, trombonist George Bohannon. Wow. All right, Bohannon was in Detroit, and the out the, the track he was referencing on the uh, 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 that I played for him that you didn't hear was um, The Temptations, 1990, and you played drums on that. Right. And well, see, well, a lot of times when we would play, I mean, we would just do the rhythm. We did it. Did, see, the early Motown situation was quite different from the Los Angeles Motown. Okay, explain. Yeah, no. So let's break down. Well, yeah, I, I've done that. I mean, everybody was in one room in Detroit. In Los Angeles, they laid the rhythm before, and then they brought the horns in. Right. And and like, how would you? Um, how much did the I mean everyone you know Paul Reiser and you know Norman Whitfield these producers get a lot of credit but I also realize now that the musicians were as important in creating grooves and I just wonder when you think back about it how much creative freedom when the, when you were laying the rhythm tracks how much creative freedom you guys had to do it, what you what you did best, as opposed to be micromanaged by somebody who really was never a musician. Well, it was much less creative freedom in Los Angeles than it was in uh, Detroit. Uh, in Los Angeles, most of the time, they wrote out everything. And it was written out. What the producer wrote out, what uh, 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 the arranger, would, the producer would have the arranger to write out the ideas that he wanted. And so in Detroit, they, uh, from what I've talked to the different, you know, musicians about, they put it together back there like that. They would, uh, just like he was saying, they, they would get together and, 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 and make the riffs and the different lines for the producers. So out here, everything was written, you know, the whole nother thing. Except sometimes, every night and night, like he, he mentioned Norman Whitfield, Norman Whitfield, like he would, he, sometimes he would ask that you know, you know, see if you had something happen. Uh, Hal Davis, who I worked for, for a lot of different things. Um, I I t- I'll give you an uh, example. Yeah. Dance mach- dancing machine. Yes. I was just getting my reading together, and uh, he, the arranger at that time was Arthur. Uh, Arthur, Arthur Brooks? No, Arthur. Huh? Arthur Wright. Arthur Wright, yeah. Yeah. He was the arranger that day, and so they had the dancing machine thing, and I was just getting my reading together. I had because I didn't read until I came, had to come out. You know, 
you, have, you know, I said, if I'm going, if you don't be in the studio position, you have to learn how to read. So I know I you were studying your ass off every night. Yeah. So they had that thing that said bum bum. I said boom boom bum bum with my kick drum. Everybody stopped. I thought that I was gone because Motown was like the uh, epitome of, of 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 working out here. I mean, you know, if I, I I would be in session sometime when I first got there, and if somebody couldn't cut their part, they just call them out and pay them half of the session. So I just knew I was gone that day because I was out of line. So it didn't nobody say that for about five minutes. They said, "Hey man, can you do that again?" I said, "Yeah." <laughs> so, so yeah, wow. So they so I so if it was it again, yeah, go ahead. And I was so nervous that when I bum 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 I said bum bum, I would play on the beat. They had they had it written bum bum uh uh bum 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 So I would play bum bum because they knew I was nervous. So he, he, uh, Hal Davis said, "Hey Art, stop." Just show him, give him the, you know, the the, the the pattern. And so after that, I was able to uh, play some of the style that I played, a lot of the 16th note stuff, you know, because that was, they weren't playing that Motown, you know. Interesting, you know? interesting. So I was able to play, you know, a lot of that stuff. And so, you know, I, I, I was able to, to put certain things in, you know, that I, that I played my style. I meant to say that, like, uh, in, later in the interview, Bohannon talked about Smokey Robinson. If if George or if Cats in the in the horn section had ideas and they worked in the tune, Smokey would, would kick him some money. Uh, you know, he would give them credit for their contributions. Uh, who were some of the generous leaders? I think we – we, who were the Cats that would compensate you if you did come up with a groove? I mean, you could – you know, based on I, I know, Louis Shelton told me that he did last train to Clarksville with the Monkees, and I don't know at that time if you could have gotten uh, intellectual credits for a solo, but eventually you could uh, if you did a guitar solo or things like that. But I just wonder if there were times when you came up with a like a like that groove dancing machine, and then you would get uh, publishing credits for it. No. Nobody. The only thing that I got out of Motown, and I I I made up half of the rhythms on the the Marvin Gaye "I Want You" album. I know. Was a gold record from uh, Leon Ware, who was the producer, and he was he get, he did that out of his own pocket because Motown wasn't going to give you no gold records. You could forget all about that. You played on a, a, a record that was a hit. You you know because I'd asked them something like that. I got my feelings hurt a couple of times when I asked them about a gold record. They weren't gonna give you no gold record, let alone some money. You know, so that 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 never happens for me, even with Bill Withers. I mean, I did some stuff. God rest his soul. I and uh, you know, I had some wonderful times playing with him. But I made up some those rhythms, a lot of those rhythms, because he didn't. You know, the stuff that I played, everything that I played on, I, I made up. But I didn't get I didn't even get writer's credit. Uh and everybody in the band uh got writer's credit but me. Let, know, well so. let me ask you, I mean if, if okay, so um because you talked about, you know, use me, kissing my love, those are all your rhythms and uh other things as well. Um but you, you get paid for a Express session. Express yourself with the watch on and thirsty rhythm band, that's one of them. Oh, it goes on yeah. I, I want you, it goes on and on and on. I mean, it's just, James, like, okay, so you got paid for that session. Then ultimately there was some nice touring with Bill and some iconic records made. Why did you, if you were getting so, I know that's the way it was, and I know you got your feelings hurt, but I really want you to talk about, James, like this is so important for people in this time right now because a lot of cats get their feelings hurt because of injustice, and I'm not talking about, you know, being killed. That's a different story. I'm talking like if they didn't get the, any kind of intellectual credits for stuff that they did, they'd walk, they'd get so wrapped up in ego and pride that they would either walk away from the business itself or self-destruct. And you did not And I know that there was a lot of, I mean, you didn't have a lot of time to think cause you well, were, how did you, how did you overcome that and stay in the business? Well, I, in was, the, glad, I was glad to be working. 
I was starving so bad when I got out here. Some some friends of mine sent for me when I came to Los Angeles. They had a group. They were working at big hotels and everything. And I couldn't play the music. I was a jazz musician, so I liked to starve to death about you know until I had till I got it together playing the R and B stuff. I you know I and I had I didn't intend to play, you know. Uh, I was I, I I was I was gonna be a jazz musician. That's what I that's what my thing was. So I mean I was glad to be working. Period. When I finally got it together. So I mean that's that's what, and then the union. You're a hired hand, you know. For the, when you get paid for these sessions, that's what you are. You're a hired hand. So I mean, I understood that. You know, I understood that. So I mean, that that's why I was able to. Uh, you know, yeah. You, you had a short memory. You could just get back into the swing of it. Even though, I mean, it does feel like uh, it still doesn't feel fair. But you're still here. Um, I want to read this quote from David T. He said, There were blues players in Southern California who were surprisingly good. They didn't have the famous names, but they were musicians who could play all kinds of music. They could play a 12-bar blues and run through all kinds of substitutions solo-wise. In my first few years of playing, I didn't quite understand how they could do that. Mel Brown was certainly one of them. He had the facility and knowledge that it takes to run through chord changes. His albums on ABC were out of the blues. He could do it. All, he could do all types of other things. When Etta James was on the bandstand, she liked the jazz, even though she didn't sing a lot of that. In the vamps that we would do, she would take it outside of the chord. It would still have the funk and feeling, but you couldn't go too far out for her. She didn't care what you did on the vamp going out. She would take it out as far as you wanted to go. Can you talk about playing with some of these? I mean, you wound up recording with with Freddie King and or Albert King and 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 a lot of blues cats. Um, and I wonder about uh, like guys like Mel Brown. I mean, some of these guys un unschooled blues players, but played amazing substitutions and were incredible. Players, did you have an opportunity to play with some of those cats? Yeah, I played with them, you know. But here's here's a situation that I had. Blue Mitchell, famous trumpet player. Are you kidding me, one dude? Of, one of my favorite freaking dudes, man. I did. A, I, they called me to do an album for him. Yep, Stratasonic. Yeah, seventy five. Now I had met I had met Blue before because I was playing. I had a nineteen dollars gig from six in the morning to two in the afternoon uh this is before i got into way before i got into doing the sessions i, I was glad to get that paid 19 dollars. it was a jazz uh thing that we had over on the east side that uh you know even cannonball come through you know so i met blue so when i saw him i was you know happy i thought i said well maybe i get to stretch out a little bit today on on his music well the producer didn't want to hear that so he wanted he wanted straight R and B. So Blue would be saying, "Hey man, go ahead and stretch out." So every time I'd get ready to stretch out, the the, the producer would go crazy. Oh no, 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 stop, stop, stop! <laughs> Don't do that anymore. So I'm dealing with that. So that's I had I had a situation like that. Blue wanted a little. He wanted a, you know he wanted the funk to be a little you know a little different than just straight funk you know. So I, I had that that was you know I was. Uh, I wasn't happy that day because I didn't. <laughs> Blue, Blue was, you know, he's an epitome of one of the epitomes of, of of jazz, and so I didn't get to please him like I wanted to. You know, when you were that's, playing, I mean, I know it wasn't the most glamorous thing playing those those sun, uh, sunrise dawn sessions to two two p.m. But, um, like when Blue would come in, like I mean. That was the most. That was like late '60s. Like that was like post bop, at in its peak. I mean, can you talk about like the visceral? I mean, I cannot even imagine. I mean, there was a place called the It Club, and there was Memory Lane, and David T talks about the Zebra Lounge. I'm just trying to figure out. Like, I mean, what did you learn? You weren't you weren't getting paid a lot, but you were getting spirit. It was the only currency. What did you learn from someone like 
like Blue or Canon, as it related to, um, you know, just like I, I think that that's the biggest travesty. All the albums that Blue made before the one that you made with him in '75 uh, were done on uh, Mainstream, which was the first album you ever recorded on with Bob Shad with Kennard. Blue did a bunch of albums on mainstream, and they were all just like what you wanted to play that day. They were really funky, stretched out, 12, 10-minute tracks, and that was because of uh, Bob Shedd. But when you go back and think about those days and knowing that you were able to play with so many, you know, fathers of jazz, Stratasonic Nuances is what it's called, is the Blue Mitchell album. And basically they're doing comps of Barry White well you do do a th- they do, you do a, th- a Thelonious Monk tune in there and you're telling me this producer didn't want you to stretch out why the- no he, whoever he was that day I don't remember his name I no disrespect to him no I mean he was when I was start stretching because Brew was hey, man, take it out take it out those good he the producer would go crazy. Oh, 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 hold it, hold it. <laughs> don't, don't do that, no dude. I mean, I would have. Oh man, why did that start? That happened. That happened. That happened. Now, John Handy, I did uh, hard work with him. He was a jazz musician. Absolutely, fantastic. I know John very well. Yeah. Uh, we uh, one day John said, "Hey man, let's go ahead and just play one. Just take it out. Take it out." So, bam, we st- we hit. <laughs> Yeah. The producer Edmund Edmund Edwards, I think that was his name. Yeah, he had a fit. Hey, don't ever do that anymore. Don't ever do that anymore. I'll Jeez. fire everybody. What the heck? So, what was know, what, it, can I ask you a question though? What was making what was making him? Edmund Edwards was his name, huh? What was making him so uncomfortable, James? Because Creed Taylor, I don't know. He just they they wanted to sell a certain. They wanted to sell. You know, I guess see. They knew I could play the funk too, so they—that's what they wanted. They sure. wanted more or less that than they did the jazz stuff. But I mean, I mean, it, we could have—it could have been played just to where it would still been cool. But they, they didn't want that. What they wanted was what they, you know. So they had a fit. He said, "Oh, don't play that." I mean, uh, uh, in in in, I think full disclosure because I went to John's John Handy's house in Alameda a few couple years ago and. That that album and that one track got a lot. That became a hit record and you know, helped his career. Work, yeah. yeah, I mean that. Be, and you know he's living well off of that record because of the rhythms of my guest. Um, before I, I know you got a jam. I, I just um, when was the first time that you met Jim Keltner? Oh man! Because I mean, there's nobody that loves James Gadsden more than Jim Keltner. Well, nobody. I love him just as much. <laughs> no, because I mean, I mean, because that cat was playing. I told you, he was night. he was starving. You did. It was his birthday, right? Yeah. Oh, my God, it was his birthday. Yeah. So, so basically, um, I know that he was playing with Albert Stinson, and he was playing with uh, with Claire Fisher. He was playing jazz gigs. I mean, did you know him at that time? No, I didn't know him at that time. So, when was the fir- when did you meet him? Wow, I can't remember when I met him. Well, I'm going to have to talk to... Are you serious? Because I'm going to talk to... Kel, I'm going to call Keltner now and ask him. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I mean, it's just it's like... It's been a I while, yeah. Him. Once I met him, yeah, I've been knowing him. I mean, we we played on a session together. Um, what's the guy's name? Uh, feeling All Right. Feeling All Right. Uh, hold yeah. on, hold on. Uh... We played on that session, but I mean, that's the first time we had a serious talk. We had seen each other, but we had, that's the first time we had a serious talk. I oh, Joe Cocker. Joe Cocker. Joe Cocker. Yeah, we did a we did double drum, some double drum stuff that day. Now, I mean, I've always admired Jim because I didn't, you know, when I would, I liked the way he played, and so, you know, so you get to meet him and have have him as a friend is wonderful, you know. That was that, uh, as far as meeting him. That possibly was the first time you met him. Was on that Joe Cocker session. Well, that's the first time we had a serious talk where we talked a lot. He talked a lot. Yeah, we just had a lot of, you know, because everybody would be busy. You know, we didn't get a chance to talk and hang out. And that stuff, that, you know. So, 
Well, um, you just like we've lost a lot of people. We've lost uh, Chick Corea and Paul Jackson, Al Schmidt, Ellis Marsalis. Uh, uh, so I mean, the list goes on. I mean, since COVID began, and uh, you know, um, and I'm trying to still just you know go to that root that source that holy place and i just ask you what is not what you think is going to happen but what is your wish for musicians coming out of the pandemic because I, here's the i i just feel like the idea of a live like like the idea of going to a place like the right off room and sitting right up in front of the band I don't know. That might take a couple of years, and it makes me very depressed. But that being said, well, but hopefully, I, uh, yeah. they said it's starting. To, they'll start to open up in June. The write-off room might open up in, again in December. You know, uh, it's, uh, Bill Lynch, who oh, I love I, the guy, worked with on and off for thirty years or more. He built a club. He's building a club out in uh, Studio City. Did wait? Did he and shut? So, did he shut the one down in 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 in, uh, in Woodland Hills? Yeah, yeah. He, he yeah. He got he got one. It's gonna be in Studio City. It's gonna be he in bought, Studio City. He bought old oil 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 can Harry's club. Wait a minute. Hold. I just okay. Wait a minute. You just opened up a can of worms there. Who was Oil Can Harry? That they tell me that was a big club in the in the. Uh, early 1940s and 30s, and it became a big gay club. And this was in Studio City. This and is he what he. This is the one he just. Bo- this is the one he just bought. Right. He's buying. He's bought that and he refurbished it. That because so. you know what's really interesting is that um, there was a club in Vancouver, Washington, uh, Vancouver, Colu- British Columbia, in in, in Canada. Uh, Ahmad Jamal did a great record there with your boy Calvin Keys, John Hurd, and it was called Live at Oil Can Harry's. So maybe that's that's crazy that that was a it was a gay bar in the forties and fifties. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, I mean, uh, what's your wish, man? I mean, yeah, I, okay, maybe December. But... I, uh, I'm a Christian. I, I God is in control with me. You know, uh, and so. I'm not worried about you. I'm saying for all the creative youth, when you remember back to when you were just starving to death and trying to get your stuff together, those cats that had just tasted a little bit of the road dog life who had maybe put out an album or two. I mean, what's your wish for them, man? I mean, the, the music. Well, I wish, I wish, you know, I wish that, well, I'm hoping that jazz will, they do the they do the jazz music. That's American music. They do that so bad. I mean, they really don't uh, give it the proper. Uh, it's just it's, it's just awful what they do for the jazz music and the jazz musicians. I'm hoping that they reevaluate and uh, you know that gets back into the mainstream. I'm hoping that. Well, I was going mean, to say, the, the idea that, the, did you find, like, when you went down to, I guess, South America with Paul Humphrey, that jazz was more respected there than it was here? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it's a, music. See, the people there, are, everybody's, uh, how would you say, music is a part of their life. Yeah, it's just part of life. It's part of life. There's not, yeah, exactly. Right. So, I mean, you know, the uh, that, you know, so... They they respect music, period. So I mean that's just that's just the way that that goes. I mean they our government tried to you know they tried to close down the Metropolitan Opera. So I mean that's what we're dealing with here. We you know they not they not thinking about it. the arts as they call it. You know so I'm just hoping that that would come together. You know they would get that together. <laughs> so, I mean that that is really in need. That would make everything. That would really cool the country down more. I, I agree. Know? Dude, I am totally with you, man. And the fact that music, live music, has been on the shelf for 12 months, the vibration is so low, that's why there's so much heat right now. It's so hot. And there's so much right. carnage, man. You had more, you know, you, you take it for granted, but I look back at all the videos of you and Finnegan and Lynch and, and Laboriel, and it's just like, 
I mean, that was just one city, one night with a super session. And and that was happening, not with all the caliber players, but that was happening all over the country in every city. And, and ultimately, it's the idea of saying, okay, not only is music important, it's a profession. The cats need to be paid. And we need to recognize that as a society. And, you know, I mean, that's, you know, Dizzy, Miles, Train, they were... They made decent money. They were the stars of jazz. But this has been, you know, I mean, Jimmy Heath told me, he's like, Jimmy Carter used to send us over on State Department trips to Europe and South America to show off this beautiful American art form known as jazz. And then they get home and what was there? Nothing. You know, it's been, well, yeah. You know, they tell me in the ninth, the early 19th century, they tell me this, I don't know, I wasn't born then. Nobody was. They said jazz. Uh, musicians were treated, uh, they looked upon them as doctors, even. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, you know, uh, that, I I think that, you know, because it's a healing, it's a healing process. It is. In a way of speaking. So I think that, you know, it should be treated better. I mean, the suits got into it and, you know, that's, that's a lot. They fired a lot of people in a lot of the record companies, you know, over the last 25 years, 20 years. That were really music people, and they got the business people in there, and the music don't, the music ain't that cool no more. No. Quiet as it's kept. I mean, we got some different kind of stuff out there. I mean, I, I you know, I'm sorry. Well, everybody's got their own thing, but some of that stuff ain't music. You know, so, I mean, it's, it's you know, so, you know, it's all about money with them, so. We got to get it together. You know, God, you know what it is. God has to break the greed factor, James. Greed, greed is what's dominating right now. And and well, yeah, greed. Well, God is. You know, God is in charge. You know, you believe that. Yeah, I just look at it and I say the lunch pit. You know, it would, it's amazing that the separation in in wealth between the uh, the CEO of a company and the workers forty years ago. Compared to today, it, it's like the difference has gone up over a hundred percent. I mean, it, it, you have uh, all this, all the stuff that made sense um, for so long. I mean, ev- owners of companies made a lot of money, but their workers also did very well. And now, you know, CEOs of companies are doing great, and their workers are starving to death. That's the problem. I mean, that's really the inequality. Well, that's, that's that's you know that's you know we. This, and our days is, you know, God is in charge. I mean, I'm going to tell you just like it is. God is in charge, and uh, he's going to, you know, he's going to straighten it out. I know. You know, I mean, man, man don't seem to want to straighten it out, especially the situations that we're dealing with now. I mean, we got, uh, it's a lot of, I mean, they've turned the country to where it's a lot of hate. They're using hate as, as business now you know hated business and communication you know they got people thinking about well if i hate this or if i you know i mean this they trying to turn you know it's it ain't cool so what god knows what's happening so i mean that's that's the way i look at it you know now hopefully you know on the other hand i mean i think we're gonna here in los angeles we're gonna hopefully we're gonna open up in june so the music will start if the people, another thing, we got these people that don't want to take no shots. We got the, the politicians telling them not to take no shots. Open the schools early. Kill everybody. That's awful. You know, if they, if they, if they do what they're supposed to do and, and let the people take their shots, do it like the, like these people. They know what they're talking about. I mean, these shots have proven that, that it'll keep you from getting sick. They've proven that. But you got some people that's talking some crazy difference. You know, they're talking a whole a whole other thing. Well, they you know what they're, what they're doing is they're uh, they get the shots and then they and then they exploit their constituents and say and they make right, up some like, kind of boogeyman like thing. Trump got his shots in January. Oh, it's bullshit. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean that's and that but that speaks to the brain rot of human and people. Uh, that need to wake up. There needs to be an elevate. I mean, that's what I hope God will do is is elevate the consciousness. So well, that God is going to do something. I'll tell you that. You, know, you don't. So that. let me ask you a question. I just want to be before I let you go. You're telling me 
that four years of Trump and a pandemic and God is still waiting to do, he's going to still do something more. God is a wonderful God. God gives you a chance to try to get yourself together. Sure. You know, and uh, he's going to do what he's going to do. You know, I mean, that's just the way it goes. So, I mean, that's who I'm, that's, that's my, that's, that's the way I look at it. That's the way I, that's what I believe. You know, other people believe different things, you know, but I mean, I, I see it coming in the Bible. The Bible is so, I mean, the Bible, the what's happening now in this world, not only this country, the Bible is right down to a T. It's letting you know what's happening. It's letting you know what's going to happen. It let you know before it happens. So that's, that's, you know, that's what, that's my thing. And then, you know, hey, now David was a musician too, so, you know, and they, you know, they made they they made a joyful noise unto the Lord, you know, when it was, you know, uh, so that's that's you know, you and I had a talk, we had a talk about this some years what was it, about two years ago. David danced, yeah, absolutely. It was about four years ago, yeah, yeah. We had a talk about. It. You said, "Is the world going to ever be like it was?" I said, "No." Remember, we talked about this. Yeah, you know, I got to go back and 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 I don't quite I don't. I don't quite remember that, but I believe well, it. You didn't. You were going out the gate. You didn't. Oh, you didn't it was, so it wasn't. It wasn't recorded. It was just. We oh, were you just, said, "Man, the world." You said, "Man, the world's changing." Oh yeah, I remember. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember. I remember. Um, Gadsden, I love you, man. I, uh, um, I hope that um, you know within the next maybe calendar year, I I'll come see you play music, man. I I. Uh, I uh, and I agree with you, man. I think that uh, my hope is that um, musicians are recognized as healers, and all of a sudden, it's not their gift to the world. It's uh, they uh, they need to be compensated for it. And I'm not talking about Paul McCartney and Steve Miller and Journey and Tower of Power. I'm talking about you know, creatives all over. Uh, just the creative musician, you know, and um, and we'll do it again, man. So thanks for taking the time, dude. All right. Yeah. Much love to you, brother. God bless you. Yeah. All bless right. you too, man. All right. Later. Bye-bye. Bye. James Gadsden, dropping knowledge and inspiration. The Divine will lead us forward. That's it for the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll see you tomorrow.